second grade and above. So, hey, um, well, as you see by your bulletin, uh, it com- Freedom and Conflict is the title today. And uh, it seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Freedom and Conflict. Um, man, there's a lot of conflict going around in, in our world, especially this past couple of years. Um, but conflict is inevitable. If you've ever been in a relationship, then you've been misunderstood. And when you're misunderstood, um, it's because of a breakdown in communication often. Um, as uh, Norman Wright said in his book, he said, communication experts point out that when we talk to another person, there are actually six messages that are coming through. What you mean to say, what you actually say, what the other person hears, what the other person thinks he hears, what the other person says about what you said, and what you think the other person said about what you said. Can you, can you understand why conflict is inevitable? <clears throat> Conflicts happen on the national level, leads to wars. They happen on the political level, of course, uh, between the right and left. And uh, they happen in the workplace. They happen in families. They happen in church families. They happen in schools. When Lynn and I, uh, when, when, what, led, what led Lynn and I to Kansas was a group that we were in called Heart Song. Um, I traveled with a group called Heart Song, and, and we cranked out these records. Um, every year there was a new record of the 14-year uh, existence of this band called Heart Song, and every year there were turnover of members, and so Lynn traveled two years after I traveled two years. So... Um, but that's what led me to Kansas, and then she uh, came to Kansas because uh, I was dating her. But when, when we're th- thrown into this band, when we auditioned for this band, we were chosen. Then uh, we practiced for a month in Houston. And then after a month of being with brand new strangers, they threw us in a 15-passenger van. And they said, go, go minister. God bless you. And so for the next year, we traveled for two years. We traveled, actually. And, uh, and conflict happened because you throw all these personalities together from different walks of life, um, never met meeting each other prior to this, then there's going to be inevitable conflict. People will drive you nuts when you're essentially living out of a van for two years. Conflict is a difference in opinion on purpose that frustrates goals and desires. A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates one's goals and desires. Now, if you like the Montreal Expos, and I like the New York Mets, we won't have conflict over that because who cares if you like the Expos? Because it didn't, it didn't conflict with my goal or my desire. But if you infringe on my desire or goal, then conflict could happen. Well, there are spiritual conflicts as well because we have an enemy called the devil and we live in a worldly system that opposes God and we deal with this human nature in our flesh. And so Jesus said this about that conflict. He said in Matthew 10, brother will betray brother to death if you're my my disciple. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death you will be hated by everyone because of me. There's a promise to claim. Matthew 5, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said similarly, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, another promise that Jesus gives to us. Conflict is inevitable. But it's not always a bad thing because in conflict we have opportunities. Conflict is an opportunity that God allows into our lives. He's even promised we'll have conflict. What, what will conflict do? Well, first it will point others to Jesus if we allow it to. Now, you know, the Jews were in conflict with one another, or the, actually the new Christians were in conflict with one another, uh, the Jewish Christians in, in different churches, especially in Corinth, because there were some Jews who said we can eat meat that had been sacrificed to idol because meat in and of itself is not unclean. It's okay. There are no unclean foods. Others were saying, but if it's been sacrificed to idols, then it will, it's, it will be unclean. And so there was arguments back and forth, and it divided the church. There was great conflict. They had board meetings to discuss this. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this. Yes, you have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. What was he talking about? They said, if someone offers food that's been associated to worship, then he said, maybe it's better not to eat this food that has been associated with idolatry. Even though food is in and of itself not unclean, it's neutral. It's better not to eat it because what will happen, people will see you eating this food associated with idol worship, and they will conclude that you're endorsing their idol worship, potentially. So it's better that you don't eat it so that you would not cause them to stumble. So Paul says, you have the right to do anything as believers in Christ, but not everything is beneficial or constructive. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. That was the principle. Be other-centered. Care about the others' rights more than your rights. He goes on in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks, or in the church of God. I try, I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. That is the Christ-like attitude. Be focused on the other person. What will minister for them, to them, to what will point others to Jesus. Secondly, conflict is an opportunity to display God's glory, which is very similar, different language, I suppose. Paul goes on in verse 31, though, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, Moses experienced the glory of God through his leadership when thousands were angry at Moses because they were literally trapped between a rock and a hard place, or should I say an Egyptian army and a sea, and they thought that they were going to be killed imminently by this Egyptian army. Well, Moses didn't know what to do. God told him to stick his staff in the Red Sea, and you know what happened. The Red Sea parted, and the glory of God was displayed when Moses turned to God. Another time, the Israelites were hungry, they were thirsty, they were hangry, and they were really ticked off at, at Moses because they were, they, they were dreaming of their former days in Egypt because they were without food and water. So God's glory showed up again when Moses turned to God. God says, strike the rock. Water came out of the rock, and then manna fell from the heaven, and God provided food and water for the remaining of their days. God was glorified. 
Joshua uh, led the people into the promised land. He came against city after city, walled city. Uh, Joshua turned to God. Um, God revealed his glory through earthquakes, the crumbling of walls, the enemies who turned on one another by giving them confusing spirits, and God's glory was revealed. You know the story of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, how God's glory was revealed through the prophet Elijah, and then David and Goliath. You know these stories. God was glorified when God's people turned to God. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others in conflict, I add, that they may see your good deeds, your other-centeredness, and glorify your Father in heaven. Light shines brightest during dark times. Dark times of conflict. That God may be glorified. How have you experienced conflict and how have you dealt with it that gave glory and majesty to your heavenly Father? How by your behavior was God glorified in the midst of conflict? That's the question we're being asked today. A third opportunity uh, during conflict is to make us more like Jesus, to refine us. The very next verse, Paul writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. When I was in Heartsong, with these other guys, you know, and they were just annoying me to death, some of them. Um, I had to do something about that. I couldn't harbor anger and impatience and and bitterness in my heart um, toward these personalities because every night I got on the stage and I proclaimed the love of Jesus. And how could I proclaim the love of Jesus when I had anger and bitterness in my heart? So I had to do business with God. First John Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You're walking contradiction. Do something about that. Namely, repent. I spent two years experiencing a steep growth curve in my spiritual life. And I found out that these people who differed from me were like iron. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I would struggle with the thought that I introduced at the beginning of the service. If everyone would simply think like me, if everyone would simply think like me, then this, this group would be so much happier, so much more unified. If, any, if all of you would agree with me, your senior pastor, then just think how great we could become. You know, how arrogant is that? But that's how we think, isn't it? If everyone would just think like me, those idiots, that's how we think. And that's arrogant. And, and I confess that sometimes I think like that too. You know, God places children in our families who are just like us, right? Wrong. Here's a couple Christmas pictures that kind of display a difference. Maybe the one on the right, they're all the same. They all are idiots. But on the left, I don't know. I tried to find one, uh, tried to find one that would better exemplify what I meant there, but God does, he gives us children who are completely different from us as mom and dad. Why? To, to refine us, to sharpen us. And God does that, and he delights in doing that because he knows that we need to grow and mature. Um, in the same way that when God throws a bunch of people together in a church or a church family or a family or a leadership team, or a workplace, or a school district, differences will be plethora. 
Let's get over it. Let's recognize that there's going to be differences. Let's actually celebrate the diversity. Because God chose amongst his disciples a diverse group of disciples, didn't he not? He chose two zealots who would have been on the far left in the government. You know, they would have been anti-Rome. They wanted to murder the Romans. And then he chose Matthew the tax collector who was employed by Rome. He was a Roman sympathizer. And he said, guys, love each other. Show the world what love is all about. He said, forget about the left. Forget about the right. Focus on a different government. The kingdom. My kingdom. And when you focus on me, then you'll love each other. And you'll celebrate your differences even. But your, your differences will not matter when you have me in common. And so he did that. Um, God uses our differences to make us like Jesus. And we all say that we want to be like Jesus, at least in theory. Who does not want to be like Jesus? We all want to be like Jesus. We all say, right? But do we really? See, my natural and initial tendency when I face conflict is to respond unlike Jesus, with impatience and with arrogance. But then God reminds me that there's a better way. With every conflict, God says, I've given you a choice. You can respond like me, dependent on me, or you can respond according to your sinful flesh. Uh, I like what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity when he wrote, good and evil both increase that compound interest. That's why the little choices or decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you have never dreamt of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. In other words, our little choices in the midst of conflict have enormous um, ramifications for our future, how we respond. So when cut, someone cuts me off in traffic, if I'm by myself, how I think, how I respond, how I feel has enormous ramifications as to how I will be in the future. When I get bumped, whatever spills out of me reveals what's contained within me. If I get bumped in all this anger and you idiot and I want to do things and say things, if that's how I respond, then it just reveals who I am. I'm not filled with a spirit. I'm filled with myself, my sinful self. And that should be a wake-up call to me that I need to do some serious repenting. Um, so oftentimes we justify our responses because we don't understand why we respond the way we do. We are so programmed to respond or react the way we do because of years and years of programming in the brain. For example, three sons experienced much conflict growing up from an alcoholic father who was abusive. And so the youngest boy, uh, the littlest one, he was always scared to death when dad came home. And so he'd run and hide under the bed and slam his door and, and cower. And so it doesn't surprise us that when he grew up, he was an avoider of conflict. He ran from, from conflict. And then the middle boy, he was a peacekeeper because when dad came home, 
he said, hey, Dad, how, how can I help you? What do you need, Dad? Are you okay? Can I get you anything? He was a peacekeeper, and so it doesn't surprise us that when he grew up, he became an enabler in conflict, um, a peacekeeper. And then the oldest boy, he was a bigger guy, um, when he got pushed around by Dad, he went up to Dad and got in Dad's face said, if you ever do that again to me, Dad, you will ever regret that you did that. And so he grew up to be a fighter in conflict, an aggressor in conflict. All three boys raised the same way, all ended up completely different from each other. And they didn't even understand why. And we have to do some soul searching as well. All three of them, it, they, they responded in unhealthy ways. We need to reprogram the ways that we think. Romans 12, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world any longer. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. <clears throat> Another way to look at conflict is the check engine light in your car. Uh, you can respond in uh, two, two unhealthy ways or one healthy way. One would be, oh man, that engine light comes on, you grab a piece of duct tape and put it over there. Ah, you're an avoider of conflict. <coughs> Excuse me. And then um, another uh, one, or you could respond this way. Check engine light comes on, you grab the hammer and <laughs> never comes on again. Problem solved. You're an attacker in conflict, like the older boy, right? Or the third way is the check engine light comes on and you pull over or you drive it home and you pop the hood and you, you, know, you look at what's underneath and you get help. You, you do something positive to resolve it. When there's conflict, we can respond in unhealthy or healthy ways. Um, and he, here are some unhealthy and healthy ways more specifically from this book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Um, we use this in our leadership development here. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Houston and Tony Weedle teach it leadership cohort. We use it for that. And the young marrieds will be using this in their Christian formation class upcoming, beginning next week or two weeks from now. Uh, so a really, really helpful book. And I just want to give you a spoiler uh, to this. Um, Ken Sandy deals with unhealthy and healthy ways in this graph. On the, on the left part of the pie there, there are unhealthy escape responses, unhealthy. It's like the kid who hides under the bed. On the far right, those three choices are attack responses, like the fighter, the oldest boy, um, and that's unhealthy. But there are six healthy ways and biblical ways to respond that are very healthy. And so we can do something in the midst of conflict to be Christ-like, and that's very encouraging now let me deal with the unhealthy first. The escape response is on the left. Um, suicide will be the ultimate escape. You know, I want to escape life. But it's the third leading cause of death for adolescents, so it's very real. Uh, and then the next extreme would be flight. You run from conflict. You quit. You leave relationships. You avoid. You divorce, etc. And then denial would be the third unhealthy way under the escape Denial is um, conflict doesn't exist. You just ignore it. You put your mask on and you're a peacekeeper rather than a peacemaker. On the other extreme, on the right, you have the attack responses. And the most extreme would be, of course, murder. And few of us will end up murdering anyone in our anger and conflict. Uh, but, of course, you know that what Jesus said about murder, he said, you've heard it say... Uh, People long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You say, yeah, yeah, hoo, hoo. But I tell you that anyone who is angry 
with a brother or sister will be subject to the same judgment. Ooh, ooh. All right, Jesus, thanks for that. Um, the next unhealth would be litigation, taking a fellow Christian to courts and letting the, the courts deal with it. Um, and that's not healthy. Uh, and assault would be the third which would be verbal attacks or slander or gossip or public humiliation, efforts to damage one's reputation. Uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a term of humiliation, raka is answer to the court, is, will be answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The first Escapism would be a focus on me. What can I do to protect me, 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 me? This one would be attack on you. It's always you focus. It's your fault. You're the idiot. You're the cause of this conflict. Always pointing the finger at the other person. Unhealth on both extremes. Um, and when we use this second uh, thing, the attack uh, deal, then um, you can kiss your relationship goodbye because you don't care about the relationship you just would rather get rid of the relationship, right? The tactic, that tactic of anger is usually used by someone who's really overconfident and arrogant, or it's used by someone who's overly insecure. They tend to be angry people. Uh, and then the third and healthy way, there are six responses under peacemaker responses. The focus is not on me or you, it's on us. It's on us. Um, the first is, uh, well, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And the first response is to overlook an offense. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed. Overlook the offense. How do we normally respond when we're insulted or when someone vehemently disagrees with us. Do we overlook that offense or do we fight back? Or do we run from it? What do we do? Matthew 5:38. you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, Jesus said, but I tell you, but do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Go them two miles. Do you think, have you, we're so familiar with this. Let me rephrase this. If anyone forces you to wear a mask, what's our response to be? Or if anyone says don't wear a mask or whatever, what's our response going to be as followers of Christ? And this every bit as relevant as what Jesus is saying here. I mean, if someone forces you to give them your shirt, then give them your coat as well. Forces you. That's the Christ-like way. That is the Sermon on the White Mount way. That is the kingdom way. It's not the worldly way. It's the kingdom way. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh yeah, we know that. But do we do it on a practical level? Do we do that as followers of Christ? We want to be like Jesus but not like those idiots. That's not Christ-like. And then the third way is reconciliation. Always to pursue reconciliation. Again, Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar in church, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, it's not even you against them, it's them against you. And and Holy Spirit brings it to mind, then leave your gift in front of the altar. Just leave it there, leave church, and go be reconciled. And then come back and offer your gift. Make that your priority. Or Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen, you have won them over. That is the end goal, to win them over, to win them back in the relationship. Reconciliation and restoration. Not to point out them as idiots or to humiliate them or to uh, whatever, make them your enemy, but reconciliation. And then thirdly, negotiation. Once you're reconciled, sometimes there are material goods involved, finances or whatnot, and they need to be negotiated. And so you have to not just reconcile, but you have to make things right, sort of like Zacchaeus did when he offended people. He made it right by paying back uh, seven times. Uh, Negotiation, settle your matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, and your adversary may hand you over, or they might hand you over to the judge, judge may hand you over to the officer, and then you may be thrown into prison. So in other words, try to make things right with that person who you disagree with. Don't go to the courts. The next is mediation. This is biblical. Mediation means get, get another brother or sister to come and mediate and help be a, a listening ear. If they will not listen, take one or two others along that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. <clears throat> and then... The step up is arbitration. Get someone who's more professional who will intervene for you. You know, go into an office, let them hear your case, let them decide, agree that you're going to allow that person to arbitrate for you. 1 Corinthians 6, if anyone has a dispute with another, do you dare to take them before ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? You know, take it to a Christian who will listen and, and who will arbitrate for you, who can give their professional wisdom to you. And it goes on in 1 Corinthians 6. It, it, it said, but instead you take your brother to an, a court, and this in front of unbelievers, you're suing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you see how contradictory that is? And then accountability is the last one. If still they refuse to listen... Then tell it before the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And this for a season, with the hopes that they will return after they get a taste of the world, they come back and repent. That's the ultimate goal and motive. These are six ways that we can deal with disagreement and conflict. And they're biblical. And it's always a us-centered us instead of me or you. It's about us. Our strategy is always God's love. By this, everyone will know that you are my, my disciple if you love one another. But you say, don't we have to speak the truth, though? Of course. But we're instructed, speak the truth in love. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know that verse. Do we do that, though? In love means I want the best for that person. We do this all the time with our loved ones. If our daughter's getting ready for school and she's wearing clothes that are unmatched, then mom will say, honey, 
I'm not sure those clothes match. And she'll kind of confront the daughter and say, you know, I, would you mind doing this? Because we care about our daughter. If our son is in relationship with a bunch of guys who are leading him down the wrong path and making his whole personality change, then, hey, buddy, you know, those friends of yours are having a negative influence on your life. I need you to back off a little bit. We don't do that to control them. We don't do that to incite our kids. We don't do that to manipulate them or humiliate them. We do that because we love our children. We want our children, uh, we want well-being for our kids. And this is why we speak the truth. We do it because we want the best for our relationship, not because we want to give that other person a piece of our mind and humiliate them. And I just want to conclude with this. Sometimes we can do everything possible to reconcile, and we still are not reconciled. Paul even says in Romans 12 that if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes we need to entrust people into God's care and that let God do his thing in their lives. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Take them off of your hook and, and, and put them on God's hook. And then say... Okay, I'm good myself, even though there's conflict. You know, they're on God's hook now, and uh, I've done all that I can in obedience to Scripture. So conflict is not sin in and of itself. God uses it. He uses it to make us more like Jesus. He uses it to glorify his name. He uses it to point others to Jesus by how we, as followers of Jesus, respond so differently than what the world responds than the Republicans or Democrats. Republicans, oh, you know. We're going to respond so much differently as disciples of Christ that people scratch their heads and say, whoa, you dudes are different. You're peculiar. You're unique. And thereby, we attract people to the living Jesus. Let's pray. So thank you, Jesus, that you are so different from what this world offers And thank you, Jesus, that you live inside of us. Help us to see you. Help us to know you, your character. And help us to live according to your word. Particularly the Sermon on the Mount, which is so countercultural to this world. Lord Jesus, you need to make us more and more like yourself, I pray. And we submit to that in Christ's name. Amen.